Direction 1. Your map will help guide you. I should tell you that I'm Don Kennedy. I'm here with Paul Ehrlich, Catherine Preston, and Daryl Way, who are part of this podcast project. And we're joined by a number of others who will be walking with us. We've arranged to meet some members of the Stanford community along our route who have things to say about art and birds. And who knows, we might run into others who have something to add. For those joining us from Loop 2, you should be at the walkway between the Stanford Post Office and the Stanford Bookstore. Take a seat on one of the cement benches that frame the planters while we pause for a moment before heading out to Canfield Court, adjacent to the law school. I'd like to mention that from this point on, there will be a fair amount of stopping and starting. Many places will appeal to us to sit down, and we urge you to do so. Catherine, can you give us a preview of the trees in Canfield Court? Sure. Most other places on campus, oak trees predominate, but Canfield Court is dotted with redwoods and their relatives, and it's a really good place to compare them side by side. We'll have four versions to look at there, and they're all record setters. We've got two varieties of the world's tallest tree species, we have the world's most massive species, and we have perhaps the greatest comeback ever by an extinct species. The tallest tree species is the coast redwood, Sequoia sempervirens. Of course, ours here are young, and they're not anywhere near as tall as they could eventually be. The largest individual coast redwoods are far north of here in Humboldt County. The tallest known tree is nearly 380 feet tall. Beyond that height, they just can't get enough water to their tops to keep growing. As their name implies, coast redwoods occur along coastal California and are found primarily in fog belts. And in fact, they get a lot of their water from condensed fog. And what about massiveness? The most massive trees are the giant sequoias, also commonly known as big trees. They naturally grow much farther inland and at higher elevations, primarily on the western slopes of the Sierra Nevada mountains. The most massive big tree is nicknamed the General Sherman tree. It's about 100 feet in circumference and probably about 2,500 years old. Amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. And finally, the greatest comeback was staged by the Dawn Redwood, and I'll tell you about that one when we see it up ahead in the grassy area. Direction two. Okay, it looks like we can begin. Let's move down this walkway, keeping the post office on the right, and head toward the crosswalk. You'll pass three bollards, blocking vehicular traffic. As we enter into Canfield Court, veer to the right and head into the law school's Arthur E. Cooley Courtyard. Paul, while we have a moment before reaching the law school's Cooley Court and the Calder sculpture, you might like to tell us why you turned your attention to birds. That was the influence of a crazy president of Stanford <laughs> University named Don Kennedy. He introduced me to birds, which turned out to be a wonderful organism to study if you're interested in having your conservation results be translatable to the average community where many more people are turned on by birds than are by butterflies. And here we have cardinals all over the place. (laughs) Direction three. We're getting close now to the entrance of Cooley Court. When you get there, stop at the large Calder sculpture in the center. We've asked Patience Young and Lisa Fremont to meet us here and talk about the art. Alexander Calder, as many of you know, was known for making sculpture move, for making mobiles. But he also made stabiles that imply movement. This falcon is a stabile, and to many it looks ready to take off. Oh, good. Here are Patience and Lisa. Hi, Patience. Hi, Lisa. Hi, everyone. Hi there. As I was saying, we've asked Patience Young, who is the Cantor Art Center's curator for education, and Lisa Fremont 
who as a cantor docent has been showing the outdoor sculpture collection to groups for years to tell us a little about the sculptures we're about to see here in Canfield Court. So Patience, what can you tell us about Calder and this big steel bird? The 3,800-pound, nearly two tons, painted falcon has been guarding the courtyard for 30 years. It was a gift of 1927 law school graduate Richard Lang and his wife Jane. The late Albert Elson, who taught art history here for 27 years and championed the campus collection of the outdoor sculpture, said at the dedication of this piece in 1979, Calder's work which is both spontaneous and calculated, is appropriate to a law school, as we live both by rules and free spirits. The sculpture is a symbol of creativity in our society. The protection of creativity is one of the great functions of the law. To create the falcon, Calder began with small paper models. He followed these with full-size paper models that were used as templates, like a dress pattern, when cutting the metal. The Falcon was completed in Tour, France in 1963 and was installed at Calder's studio at Sachet, France. Professor Kennedy, I assume you're going to provide a view through a science lens, so let me say that falconry has been a medieval sport in the area around Sachet, and the Falcon became Calder's emblem. As the late Professor Elson said, the Falcon is a memorable member of Calder's private bestiary in which he dissolved distinctions between fact and fairy tale, engineering and zoology, art and life. Hmm, I bet he would have been amused to witness the long neck metal crane lift his two-ton metal falcon in a place here in the courtyard. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's quite a vision. As for the science lens, the falcons Calder came to know in Sachet might well have benefited from centuries of legal protection provided through falconry, which was very popular in Europe until the late 18th century. There were lots of regulations about falconry, and they were closely followed. In the 14th century, when Edward VIII was king, stealing a trained raptor was a capital offense, punishable by death. Also, the right to employ a particular species was strictly determined by social rank. For example, an English king could fly a gerfalcon, an earl could fly a peregrine, a yeoman a northern goshawk, and a servant a kestrel. Now the latter is somewhat disheartening. Here on campus you can see American kestrels in lots of places. These very small falcons take primarily insects along with small vertebrates and mammals. Their close cousins trained by medieval English servants we're apt to bring back catches of questionable worth to our modern palate. <laughs> Their prey might be pretty small, but these little falcons are formidable flyers. I should mention that emeritus art professor Nathan Oliveira produced numerous studies of American kestrels, whose flight served as the basis for his well-received Windhover series. In that series, hovering flight is made visible through the use of catenary curves, that is, curves that resemble the sag in a line strung between two points. If you're interested in seeing kestrels or white-tailed kites hovering, that is, flying in place, you'll find that moderately windy days are usually your best bet. When the wind's too brisk, the birds must adjust the angle of their wings and then flap fast enough to keep from drifting backwards. When the breeze is too faint, the effort to stay in position is usually too energetically expensive to perform. Don, tell them about the owl. 
Well, for years, another avian predator, a barn owl, roosted in the Canary Island palm adjacent to the fenced patio behind the law school. The owl presumably found it a good spot for dispatching nocturnal white-footed mice and other rodents hunting for scraps under the patio tables or nearby trash bins. A number of years ago, maintenance workers trimmed the palm, shaving off the barn owl's roosting alcove, and the bird never returned. This loss of a mascot of sorts was also the loss of a chemical-free mouse and rat deterrent. You know, maybe if maintenance workers mounted an artificial roosting platform in the palm, the owl would return. That's a fine idea. I might point out that in a tree outside the biological labs, Heron Hall, there was a barn owl that regularly left a casting under that tree that consisted of a skull and other bones of a white-footed mouse. This barn owl, undeterred by buildings and grounds doing something to its roost, appeared to score a mouse just about every night. Direction 4. Facing away from the Calder sculpture in the law school, take the center asphalt path that divides the lawn and walk towards the crest pole, known as the Stanford Legacy, on your right, which is in front of a series of coast redwoods. When the grass is dry, leave the asphalt path and walk around the sculptures and trees for a closer look. One of those trees stands out as having bluish leaves. It's a horticultural variety of Sequoia sempervirens called Filoli. We'll talk more about coast redwoods in a bit. For now, though, we should note that the coast redwood graces Stanford's official seal and serves a lot less gracefully as its mascot, the tree. Patience, what can you tell us about the totem pole and the homage it pays to the Stanford family? First of all, the 40-foot pole was cut from a two-ton, 400-year-old western red cedar. If you walk up behind it, you'll see that the back is hollowed out. The tree was a gift from the Weyerhaeuser Company found after a long search. After harvesting, it was sliced down the middle and the decayed center was scooped out. The matching half was also carved into a totem, or more correctly, a crest pole. The crest pole was carved by Haida artist Don Yeomans and was installed here in 2002. It's a gift of the Marcia and Fred Remus family and was the first 21st century piece in the university's outdoor sculpture collection. It shows the history of the Stanford family and the founding of the university in a way that crest poles traditionally reflect the history of Haida clans or families. Reading from the top, a winged child, representing Leland Stanford Jr., who died when he was 15 years old, is seated on a raven that shares a tongue with a frog, which, by the way, can be interpreted as the transfer of knowledge. Beneath the frog, a woman representing Jane Stanford, his mother, weeps with a long copper-colored tear running down from each eye. She has a labrette, that is, a piece of wood or stone, inserted into her lower lip. A labrette? A labrette is a badge, of sorts, that measures social status or wealth among the Haida. Climbing up each tier is a young person whose advancement is made possible through educational opportunities here at the university. Below Jane Stanford, her husband, Leland, holds a shield-like form known as a copper. It, too, is a badge that signifies great prestige or wealth. His hat and the potlatch rings on top of it indicate that he has provided many great feasts, that is, potlatches. The figure between his legs is reaching up for the gift of education. Below that is a bear, not the cow bear, but the state animal, the grizzly, 
with a copper-painted tongue covering the ears of a partially formed child unable to hear the news that education provides. Thanks, Patience. Viewed through a science lens as an example of science art, the choice of the raven as an emblem of information transfer has a basis in biological reality. Bernd Heinrich has studied members of the corvid family, and in particular ravens, for decades. For now, let me just mention the recent report about the rook, a raven cousin in Europe. Aesop's fables, which Alexander Calder illustrated, these fables are known for teaching moral lessons, not for being literally true, but passing on some valuable guides to character. But it turns out that one of Aesop's stories may be true after all. In this story, the thirsty crow found a pitcher containing water. Having realized that the water level was too low, the crow dropped stones into the pitcher until the level was high enough to reach. In an experiment at Cambridge, untrained rooks used the same stone-dropping strategy to get at a floating worm. They quickly figured out that bigger stones were more effective, and they didn't check the bottom of the container for the worm, realizing that it would float into reach. That gives you a measure of intelligence. As far as transferring information, crows, ravens, and other members of the corvid family roost communally and are known for sharing news of food sources with roost mates. There's a lot of art to look at here and related bird information, but I'd like to remind you to keep your eyes out for the birds themselves in the grass and in the trees. Among those you're most likely to see on the grass here are those who best tolerate people, American robins, dark-eyed juncos, and California towhees. In the trees, you'll see the usual mix of sparrows, jays, members of the Oak Woodland Guild, titmice, nuthatches, bushtails, vireos, sparrows, woodpeckers, as well as crows, ravens, the occasional warbler during migration, waxwings, and others. Wait, before we move on, let's take a look at this trio of an unusual sort of redwood. These are called dawn redwoods, and they're the ones that made such a remarkable comeback, which I'll get to in a minute. In winter, they lose their leaves, so they're easy to distinguish from the more common coast redwoods. But the rest of the year, they look remarkably similar to their cousins. If you pick up one of the fallen branchlets from under the tree, you'll be able to compare their needles with those of their cousins later. Dawn redwood needles tend to be more rounded at their tips and tend to be brighter and paler green than those of coast redwoods. Tell us that story. So, dawn redwoods were thought to be extinct. Fossils were discovered in 1941 by a Japanese paleobotanist, but no scientist had ever seen the tree alive. It turns out, of course, that local people in a remote village of eastern Sichuan province did know the tree. In 1944, a schoolteacher invited his friend Professor Zan Wang, who just happened to be one of China's leading botanists, to examine the stand. His was the first scientific collection of the species. After that, various American scientists went to see the trees, including Milton Silverman, who was a Stanford graduate and Ph.D. Silverman did some science writing for the San Francisco Chronicle and was the one who gave the tree its English common name, Dawn Redwood. Seeds from these trees were cultivated, and in the years that followed, Chinese and American botanists made a great effort to spread the seedlings around the world. Now these trees are pretty common in botanical gardens, and it's of little surprise that a lot of those date to the late 1940s. One of these was planted on campus on the lawn of the university president's house in 1953. In the wild, though, they're still seriously endangered. Direction 5. 
Continuing down slope, you'll see on your left a metal column dedicated to Al Elson, who died unexpectedly in 1995. Lisa, what can you tell us about the Rosati column? James Rosati, who taught at Yale, finished the column in 1984 when he was 72 years old. You could say it exemplifies his view that art elevates the mundane. Its title, Column 1, is simple, but its design is wonderfully sophisticated. The stainless steel planes are positioned to reflect the sunlight as it changes throughout the day, highlighting the junctions of the three-part pillar, the supporting base, the central cube, and the flaring projection. The backdrop of trees, the nearby yeoman crest pole carved from a decaying cedar, and this metal column tell a story about our long human history of providing commentaries. And the cost in terms of resources. Catherine, it looks like we've got more redwoods framing the Rosati column. Yes, there are two kinds of redwoods behind the sculpture. A pair of coast redwood trees along with a so-called giant sequoia or big tree. Now, you might expect the big tree to be the biggest tree in the stand. But ironically, the biggest trunk here belongs to a very large coast redwood, and the big tree is rounder and closer to the asphalt path. There are several other smaller coast redwoods here also. These conifers are in the same botanical family as the cypresses, and they're very easy to tell apart. The coast redwood is much more common on campus. It has flat needles, some nearly an inch long, but they get shorter towards the tips of the branches. The needles are arranged in one plane along the stem, so that the smallest branches resemble long, narrow feathers. When the needles fall, they're shed along with these entire feather-like branchlets. These little feathery branchlets can be found underneath the trees. If you'd like, pick one up and compare it to the one from the dawn redwood we just saw. By contrast, the big tree has very short needles, which really just look like sharp scales covering the branches. These needles fall individually and don't make nearly as much leaf litter as those from the coast redwoods. The coast redwood is officially known as Sequoia sempervirens, and it was given its genus name in 1847 to honor Sequoia, the man who developed an alphabet and a written version of the Cherokee language. The species name sempervirens means ever-living. The big tree used to be included in the same genus, Sequoia, so when it was moved into its own genus, its Latin name was changed just a little bit. Now it's called Sequoia dendron giganteum, meaning giant sequoia tree. The dawn redwood we saw before is called metasequoia. I've read that coast redwoods are the poster children for ecological forestry, that seeking the runts of the forest to harvest rather than the biggest trees allows lumber companies to maximize the standing volume, get better wood, and potentially gain considerable income from carbon storage. That's right. Hopefully we'll hear from biology professor Gretchen Daly about natural capital in one of our upcoming loops. Direction 6. Continuing down the center asphalt strip, look toward your right and head to the shiny steel sculpture that could be taken for a mosquito. Lisa, this used to be on the other side of the law school, didn't it? Yes, but it's well positioned here to catch the light playing off its stainless steel surface. Oakland artist Bruce Beasley calls it Vanguard, but here it's known affectionately by students as Mempest. Well, Mempest has a very interesting surface. When viewed through a science lens, the overlapping disks call to mind overlapping scales. Those of you who have taken Loop 2 and visited the New Guinea Sculpture Garden 
will remember that feathers in birds are homologous to scales in other animals. That is, they have the same evolutionary origin, but not necessarily the same function. Here, the scales give Mempest a kind of organic skin. This gets me thinking about West Nile virus. Great point. This truly monumental reminder of mosquitoes is as good a time as any to say something about birds and West Nile virus. You'll see that the wide staircase leading to Meyer Library has a landing with a number of cement benches. Feel free to take a seat. You probably know that West Nile virus can be transferred from birds to humans via mosquitoes. We've learned quite a bit about bird hosts since the virus reached California in 2003. At this point, more than 300 bird species can act as hosts. Among them, the most transmission from birds to humans has apparently been through American robins. That may seem surprising, given the susceptibility of crows, which have undergone tremendous losses. Why so many crows? Well, it had been thought that it might be related to their communal roosting habits, but it now looks as though the virus is mutated in a way that makes it far more virulent in crows. A recent study was done east of the Mississippi. Researchers found that areas with higher bird diversity had lower transmission from birds to people. It turns out that a dilution effect, that is, an increase in the number of species, reduces the proportion of suitable hosts in an area. From a sustainability perspective, it's worth noting that for birds with a small range, diseases like West Nile virus make conservation efforts all the more challenging. For example, yellow-billed magpie, which are found only in California, suffered a 50% decline between 2007 and 2009, due primarily to West Nile virus. As many of you know, birds, like these magpies, are projected to face additional challenges from the effects of global climate change. Like so many species, their habitats are predicted to change too dramatically and too quickly for them to keep up. In the case of these magpies, their range is so small that the risks are even greater. Stanford biologist Terry Root was part of a research team that included workers from the University of California at Santa Cruz and the Point Reyes and Klamath Bird Observatories. Their study, which appeared in September 2009 in the Public Library of Science, predicted that the yellow-billed magpie will decline by another third over the next 60 years under our current models of global climate change. But getting back to West Nile virus, as serious as the decline in these magpies is, the number of deaths is much higher among crows. Before continuing on, Check the tops of the redwoods near the back door of Ceres, the building that runs the length of Canfield Court behind the crest pole and Mempest. Once in a while, you might spot flocks of cedar waxwings, whose song you just heard. These migrants are fairly common, lingering in some years until June. Check the other trees, too, especially in spring. It could be added that cedar waxwing and even American robins sometimes feast on the fruits of pyracanthus or others that have been substantially aged and contain significant amounts of alcohol. Watching flocks of these birds after such a feast can be a little chaotic and confusing. Direction 7. Where the asphalt walkway we've been taking reaches the staircase leading to Meyer Library, head toward the dark, rusty-colored, S-shaped sculpture. This piece is part of Charles Genevieve's origami series, where shapes seem to be folding and unfolding as you walk around them. 
Lisa? That's right. There's a lot to notice about the way the light and shadow change as you look at the welded steel from different angles. Walk around it. Best not to touch it, though, to help preserve the rusty surface. In a 1983 New York Times review, Grace Gluck pointed out that the triangular base supports a second triangular structure that echoes but doesn't repeat it. The piece reminded her of a geometric cobra ready to strike. You question this? Well, every interpretation is interesting and gets me to look again. So one could see in it an agitated cobra, but since the sculpture is entitled Luna Moth Walk One, when I wonder if it was inspired by an animal, a snake isn't the first thing that comes to mind. Well, that's a good point. And when viewed through a science lens, it really could be what its title claims. Luna moths are part of the family Saturniidae, so named for the Saturn-like ringed eye spots on their wings. The spots on the pale green luna moth are very small, and as the name suggests, they look like the moon. As adults, these butterflies don't eat, so they don't live for a long time and don't have a lot of time to find a mate. Females release a pheromone that travels some distance, and males are strong flyers. I haven't heard much about their walk and don't actually remember ever seeing it. The caterpillars, though, will rear up the front part of their bodies when threatened. I guess that could look cobra-like to somebody. I hadn't considered that. Jennifer, by the way, is a local artist. He was born in San Mateo. His work is found in collections around the country. This piece is the first in a series of Luna Moth Walks. It was completed in 1982 and was a gift of Thomas and Shirley Davis. One more thing, the caterpillars are known to feed on several tree species, including persimmons. And there's a persimmon tree in the triangular island of grass just to the left, about 50 yards upslope. Yes, it's a nice touch, having the luna moss plant food so close by. I should note that luna moth caterpillars are usually solitary, so they're generally not seen as pests. Direction 8. Walking past the sculpture, continue down slope. We'll pass another large stainless steel sculpture on your left. The subject is music, and it is not exactly related to our themes, but it demonstrates an ecological truth in an abstract way. The artist, Kenneth Snelson, entitled the piece Mozart One. Patience can tell us how it stays together. The sculpture is about essential forces. The tubes represent compression, and the wires represent tension. That's what Snelson called floating compression, and five years later, Buckminster Fuller renamed it tensegrity, tension plus integrity, after Snelson showed it to him. The piece stays together because the parts are mutually supportive and press outward to form a tense, stable network. Snelson has been quoted as saying the harmony of his work, that is, the push and pull, is its essential, and that the push and pull are also reflected in the harmony of everyday life. My guess is that when viewed through a science lens, as science art, it represents a kind of balance of nature, like the balance seen in an ecosystem. That's it. Change one part of the system, you change all parts of the system to one degree or another. And in the case of Mozart I, change one part and the whole thing deforms and possibly collapses and the music stops. Fortunately, nature is more forgiving. 
Patience, thanks so much for your time and insights. This has been just great. My pleasure. Direction 9. If you can't see the clock tower in the distance on your left, keep walking until you do, and then walk towards it. The bell tower, which was dedicated in 1983, houses the bells and century-old clockworks from the original steeple of Memorial Church. You're hearing it now. Right before you get to the clock tower, you'll see a cluster of small trees with white and green striped leaves. This is a variegated variety of box elder. They lose their leaves in October, but throughout the warmer months, they have very striking white and green striped leaves. The white sectors on the leaves come from a mutation that affects only some of the cells growing at the tips of the branches. For this reason, the plants are called chimeras. They're a mix of genetically different cells. The white-colored patches lack chlorophyll for photosynthesis, so of course those cells can't feed themselves. This makes the growth a bit weak. Every once in a while, a branch with only green cells appears, and it will grow stronger and faster than the other branches. And then the campus grounds crew must trim these green branches out, otherwise they'll eventually take over. So in the end, this fancy variety is pretty unsustainable. Direction 10. At the clock tower, you'll see a traffic circle at the intersection of Escondido and La Suene Mall. If you go straight across the circle, you can walk back to Memorial Church and paths that lead to the quad and the end of Loop 2. If you can stay with us for another half hour or so, Loop 7 has more ground to cover. Turn right at the traffic circle. Being mindful of the bicycle traffic, Find the walkway on the right. It's alongside the row of coast live oaks that runs the length of La Suene Mall. Direction 11. Just beyond the first building on the right, the education building, you'll see a white flagpole and a fountain in the shape of a lotus, surrounded by a circular cement bench honoring those who sustained Stanford through its first hundred years. Paul, as you know, Daryl Way and I have been working to raise the visibility of science art here on campus. We're sort of hoping, Daryl, on the basis of her knowledge of art and how art and science meld to provide a clearer view of important aspects of nature and how it works. And in, in this effort, what we're really trying to do is to create a system in which we can reach out to people who wouldn't ordinarily get the kind of contact with nature that they can get both by walking around and looking and hearing descriptions and listening to people like you talk about the science that undergirds them. So you might want to make a comment or two on that. Well, you know, you don't even have to be taken out to Jasper Ridge. The wonderful nature right here on campus. In fact, one of my favorite illustrations done by Darrell was of an incident that led us to publish a little paper out of our bird biology class. I was walking with a couple of colleagues towards our building, towards Heron Lab, and there was a scrub jay attacking a juvenile starling. I knew that scrub jays were nest robbers and so on, but this thing pounced on the starling, hammered its head with its beak, knocked it down, was clearly going to eat it, kill it and eat it. We published a little note on it, so we there had a little publishable scientific paper done right on Stanford campus. And I suspect I'm watching the acorn woodpeckers or the cabbage butterflies or any number of other organisms. We often get students out looking at them. On campus, you could get scientific papers. Let's pause here. 
Take a seat on the circular bench and I'll tell you about the bats in the eaves of Green Library and the university's responsibility for their well-being. What you just heard are Mexican free-tailed bats. Bats are actually part of the Integrated Pest Management Program here at Stanford. Buildings and ground maintenance installed bat boxes in an effort to help control insect pests and reduce the university's dependence on using chemicals to reduce pest populations. Are there lots of bats here? I didn't know. Yeah, lots of bats. Until the last library renovation, a breeding colony of about 5,000 nested in the eaves of the outer part of Green Library. Bats are so interesting. Did you know that almost one in four mammal species is a bat? Of the 16 species known to our region, fully half have been recorded on the core campus or at Jasper Ridge. The quad is a good place to look for them, especially at dusk and dawn. They're nocturnal, but with a 10-inch wingspan, they're not difficult to see. They can take up to 600 insects in an hour and can come home at dawn having eaten half their weight in insects. You can find a number of bat boxes on campus. Bats aren't easy to catch, but merlins which are a little larger than a robin and have amazing aerial skills sometimes lie in wait for them. There's a painting in the faculty club that includes a section of green library roof and shows a merlin trying to catch a Mexican free-tailed bat. Here again is what the Mexican free-tailed bats sound like. Take a look at the carved reliefs above the entrance to the Bing Wing of Green Library. You'll see three figures representing what the original library warehoused inside. That is, access the information on the arts, on literature, and on the sciences. It's what the library is housing outside that's of interest at the moment. Direction 12. Take a look at the floodlight high on the left corner of the building. You'll probably have to walk a few paces until you get a view unobstructed by trees. If it's spring, you might well see ravens in the pile of sticks on top of the floodlight. The Green Library ravens, as mentioned, return to nest here each year. If it's not spring, you might see the remains of their nest. Occasionally, the university maintenance crew clears away the nest and washes the wall but so far, the birds have rebuilt or refurbished it every year. In April, you might see that spring's young getting flight ready. You also might see the birds on various tile roofs, or commuting to the dish, or of course here and there on the ground or on campus trees. They've got a wide array of calls, but here's what they basically sound like. The Stanford librarian, Mike Keller, has brought much attention to the birds. He has a drawing of them outside his office that library patrons can view from the turnstile at the Laos Wayne Mall entrance. In 2008, he used that drawing as the annual holiday announcement, circulating it to hundreds of people both within the university and beyond. Hi, Mike. Hi, Don. I'm glad you're here. Mike, we've just been talking about the raven nest. As I recall, the first breeding pair was recorded in 99 here at Green Library. And the drawing outside your office shows the nest the following year with its brood of five. 
That's exactly right. In 1999, as we finished the reconstruction of Green Library West, the old main library, which we now call the Bing Wing, thanks to the generous support of the Bings and many other friends of the university, we noticed that these ravens started to build a nest on the security light that we had newly mounted on the, uh, that would be the northwest corner of the building. And uh, they've been coming back every year since, roughly in March, and they bear their nest of ravenlets, uh, usually five, and uh, teach them to fly by leaving the nest and enticing them to come for water and food. <laughs> when they're old enough to fly, they fall out of the nest and they fly to wherever their parents are to, to get some food and some water. Well, folks, you will recognize from this that Mike is already a very serious ornithologist, and I know he will agree that bringing the raven's nest to the attention of library patrons is a real benefit, not only in terms that there's a certain amount of pride that can be taken in having such an interesting menage. Well, Don, you know that as long as the ravens come back here, I think my position is safe, just as in the fact that the ravens don't leave the Tower of London. As long as they don't leave the Green Library, my position is safe here. Well, I'm delighted to announce to our <laughs> colleagues that safe for other reasons, even better than that. And, you know, one of the ways the Stanford community can really participate in, in sustaining the biological heritage that's so important to this campus is to become familiar with it and familiar with the effects that we all have on it. We've been conferring with Stanford architect Dave Larson about providing flat display cases near the building exits that could feature science art images of the species found right outside the door. Those narratives, like the drawing of the ravens here at Green, would tell building visitors and staff what they might see as they walk by and perhaps enhance their interest in it. Well, I completely agree with you that drawing attention by this means and other means to the species that live here with us is a very good thing. We, we all ought to become much more environmentally conscious and particularly, I think, sensitive to the needs and the lives of the fauna and flora escape that we have around us. Uh, especially with respect to the campus. Is there anything we could do to kind of enhance that outreach to library users about what's available here? Uh, there are probably a number of things that we could do. The idea of the uh, display cases with images of the animals and perhaps brief recitation of their life cycles, where they go after they've been here, what mm -hmm. they do while they're here, and so forth, would, I think, be very helpful. Mike, this has really been edifying, and I'm very grateful to you for participating, so thanks. Well, you're welcome, Don. I have trouble telling crows from ravens. Well, the increased abundance of crows around here, along with the regular repetition of nesting ravens each season, makes it a challenge to tell these big black birds apart. First, the ravens are conspicuously bigger, and you can tell that their bill is heavier. The key, though, is in the tail when they fly. Crows fly with a tail that is sort of flat at the end, the feathers spread out a little bit. The tail of the heavier raven definitely ends in a V. So that V shape is diagnostic even if you can't notice the bill size or don't have a crow for size comparison. I heard a very funny account of an experiment that was done with Halloween masks. Do you know which one I mean? I sure do. It was done by Kevin McGowan at Cornell and John Martzloff at the University of Washington. It wasn't about ravens, but it was about crows. In any case, McGowan and Martzloff wanted to know if it's true that people can't tell crows apart, but crows can tell people apart. 
They'd come to believe this because each of the two investigators had to do experiments that involved banding baby crows, putting thin identification bands around their legs during their nesting period. They'd look at him with some annoyance and then squawk, then their parents would squawk, and then their neighbors would squawk in a kind of community protest against the indignity that they were suffering. It turns out that the community had a long memory, and whenever they encountered McGowan anywhere, they squawked at him. He didn't know who they were, but they knew him. To find out if they recognized faces, McGowan bought a mask of a caveman. It was cheap and easy to find with long, spectacular hair and beard. But it also made sense since the birds and our Paleolithic ancestors had a long time to get to know each other. He had another researcher wear the mask when banding baby crows, who squawked and then got all the other birds to squawk, and they started mobbing the person with the mask. And then they handed out the same mask to a bunch of people on the campus. And lo and behold, the people wearing the masks tended to get mobbed by the crows in the most unpleasant way. To determine if the crows were just reacting to the mask, Martzloff at the University of Washington got a bunch of control masks. They happened to be Dick Cheney masks. And he had people wear them across the University of Washington campus. Remember, no crows were banded by researchers wearing the Cheney mask. When people wearing the Cheney mask walked across campus, students paid a lot of attention to them, but crows didn't notice them at all. <laughs> to make one last point, when Marsloff had some of the people walk across campus with the caveman mask on upside down, passing crows turned upside down to look at them and then squawk. <laughs> What does that tell you? Well, there's an evolutionary payoff for crows to recognize and identify enemies so that they can defend their own young. Direction 13. As you continue on along Las Vegas Mall, you'll pass the Henry Moore sculpture and beyond it on your right, a large oak and the art and architecture department's Nathan Cummings building. Catherine, it looks as though this landmark oak has required quite a bit of care. Care to comment on that? Indeed, this oak is one of several spectacular ones on campus. Here you can see that one of the long branches has been secured with a cable to another branch above it. Coast live oaks can live to be about 300 years old, and already the campus has lost a couple of heritage oaks to age-related decline. One old tree by the mausoleum was so beloved that when it toppled over in a storm in the 1930s, it was jacked up to near vertical and kept alive for another 60 years with the installation of anchor wires and the periodic insertion of additional cabling. When the tree had to be removed in 1993 at around age 300, a section of wood was harvested and made into a table for the rotunda of the Bing Wing, a green library, which we just passed. Another well-loved heritage tree was near the Graduate School of Business. It also had been carefully tended over the years. It had been shored up with cables and protected by a retaining wall. And it was at least 200 years old when it began dropping huge branches onto Sarah Mall and was removed in the summer of 2008. Direction 14. As you approach the building, find the short staircase to the left and take it down to the sunken plaza and to Juan Miro's 1973 sculpture, Bird, or in French, Oiseau. Lisa? Stanford's outdoor avian bestiary includes, as we've just seen, the law school's falcon and the Canfield Court's raven. It also includes the business school's flame birds, Dorman Grove's eagle, 
and Cena Jim's Griffins, the Stanford Family Mausoleum Sphinxes, the New Guinea Gardens Eagles, Cassowaries, Owls, and Hornbills, and here, the art department's generic bird. Juan Miro, a Spanish surrealist, cast this sculpture in iron when he was 80 years old. The bronze cast we have here was produced a little later. Like Calder, Moreau was known and loved for his wit. If you read commentaries on Moreau's work, you'll find that they're seen as whimsical and inventive, and that no one seems to ascribe meanings or narratives. It's hard to see how you might view this through a science lens. But you could. You see that bag-like protrusion beneath the head? It can be seen as more than a whimsical shape. It can be seen as a sack, a functional bit of anatomy. Well, it's a stretch, but a number of birds have throat sacs. Pelicans, for example, have a throat sac that can hold large prey or help the birds thermoregulate or hold meals for their young. Some male game birds, the grouse who form mating aggregations, have an ear bag called a guler sac, which they inflate during courtship. The guler sacs of some birds, like prairie chickens and frigate birds, are even brightly colored. Listen to this grouse and the sound the guler sac makes. Other birds, including owls, pheasants, and pigeons, have much less noticeable sacs. Miro's bird has one that's fairly noticeable. Whether it's related to foraging, thermoregulating, or mating, or nothing at all, is unclear. Lisa, thanks so much. That was really helpful, and it's been good to see you. You're very welcome. Direction 15. Climb up the other staircase. From the top of the stairs on your right, you will see the Stanford Art Gallery, not to be confused with the Cantor Art Center on the other side of the oval. Walk forward, cross the line of bicycle racks, the line of oaks, and Lauswain Mall itself, again being mindful of the bicycle traffic. As you approach the arcade running the length of the quad, take the short staircase on your left. While you're there, take a look at the arcade ceiling. The faculty club has a charcoal drawing of a cliff swallow carrying mud to the nest it's building within the arcade. The birds arrive reliably each spring, although the timing has never approached the uncanny consistency associated with their arrival at the mission of San Juan Capistrano. Without fail, though, as the days warm, the birds begin their annual ritual of plastering gourd-shaped mud nests under the eaves of the main quad and other sites on campus where mud is easy to find and walls provide good purchase. Of the five swallow species in North America, all of which are found on campus, this one is the most colonial. The birds form large foraging groups, opting for safety in numbers and a means of transferring information about choice feeding areas. With respect to sustainability, the practice of washing away swallow nests has been discontinued on campus. Here is the bird's call. Direction 16. As you continue forward from the short staircase, you will enter the citrus courtyard. You'll see a large palm tree on your left and a tall palm straight ahead. Originally, the courtyard was a two-lane road on land meant to be used for building expansion. Catherine, since this is called a citrus courtyard, there must be a lot of citrus in here. Yes, there are a lot of citrus trees here. Probably the best way to appreciate them is to move to the center of the courtyard. 
Citrus trees are all pretty similar in terms of their foliage. Their leaves are long and oval and smooth. Some have a bit of serration on their margins, and some have small thorns or a strip of leaf tissue running down the stalk of the leaf. If you're in doubt, you can rub a leaf and see if it releases a citrus smell, which is a good clue. If you also hold it up to the light and see many tiny translucent spots, then you have strong evidence for citrus. Those little dots hold the citrus oils. In this courtyard, there are lemons and limes and oranges and kumquats. The kumquats don't last too long on the trees since students, faculty, and staff harvest them as soon as they are ripe. You can even see the line of the upper reaches of your typical <laughs> staff arm. Not far from here, on the balcony overlooking Olive's Cafe at the Education Building, there's an unusual species of citrus called Buddha's Hand. The fruit looks like it has lots of fingers because its sections are individually covered with rind. I just want to add a word about this wonderful courtyard. The president's office looks right out at it, and the president sometimes thinks he almost owns it. In some springs, you might in fact see nectar-loving hooded orioles here. The birds are often seen as illegitimate visitors to flowers, since they harvest nectar by piercing the base of the flowers and get away without pollinating them. The striking yellow-orange birds nest almost exclusively in fan palms, and your best bet of seeing their extraordinary pendulous nest is to check the palms in the quad, in the Arizona garden, and along Frenchman's Road, where there are several of them that have had pears nesting in them in the past. You'll also see hummingbirds here, Anna's usually, though possibly Alan's. In case you've forgotten, Anna's are largely green, Alan's are orange and far less common. You probably won't see Rufus hummers, who come by in the spring since most sightings are around eucalypts, whose flowers they favor. The same goes for orange-crowned and Townsend's warblers and pine siskin, all of whom are nectar eaters, but are more closely tied to woodland. You may have noticed some dumpsters behind the black screen. The unsightly screen hides a wonderful composting project. Stanford first added composting to its recycling program in 2003, and by the spring of 2009, the university was composting a whopping 200,000 pounds of food and compostable material each month, reflecting a steady growth in participation by campus housing and downing establishments. That's almost a hundred tons of waste that doesn't end up in a landfill. Direction 17. Continue through the courtyard and pass under the vine-covered arbor into another small courtyard. Besides the palms, the largest trees in this courtyard are several old avocado trees and two younger ones. The older trees are now over a hundred and were already pretty old back in 1979 when they spawned a faculty uprising. They were destined to be removed as part of a renovation project but several faculty and staff threatened, on his behalf, that Professor Ron Bracewell would chain himself to a tree to prevent their removal. Professor Bracewell reports that part of the story in his book, The Trees of Stanford. The avocado activists also made some good arguments that the value of the existing trees outweighed the expense of protecting them during construction. In the end, all but one of the trees were saved. The older ones are now not very vigorous, but the younger ones bear fruit in late summer. And by the way, you can find a lot of interesting information about campus trees at the website trees.stanford.edu. Bracewell's book was revised and put online with the help of a Stanford librarian, John Rawlings, who happens to be a serious amateur botanist. While you might find birds perching in these trees, you might not see them foraging there. 
Avocado leaves contain persin, a fungicidal toxin which in humans has been shown to kill breast cancer cells, but in birds it can kill the bird itself. Direction 18. Turn left, pass under the arcade, and step into the main quad. Direction 19. The quad's plants are contained within eight large raised beds surrounded by circular cement collars that serve as benches. Walk from the arcade to the second circular planter from the left. The contemporary landscaping and decoration of the quad was made possible by a generous gift to Stanford. It involved taking away some crushed bitumen or asphalt which had been laid down originally and was not only uncomfortable to walk on but hell on bicycle tires. Thanks to Boyd Smith, we were able to tile the entire inner quad completely reassemble the eight cement-circled oases and thin out the vegetation so that from any point in the inner quadrangle, you can look around you and see the architectural rhythm of the arches. Catherine, what do we have here? One of my favorite plants is in this circle right in front of you. It's a cycad called Cycas revoluta. Some people call it sago palm because it looks superficially like a very short palm, with its stout stem and large pinnate leaves, but really it's nothing at all like a palm. Cycads are gymnosperms, thus much more closely related to pine trees and ginkgos than to palms. In fact, they first appeared in the fossil record nearly 300 million years ago, which was even before the rise of the dinosaurs, whereas palms are much younger, less than 100 million years ago. So why do you like them so much? Well, they have interesting sex lives. At first it seems familiar, Plants are either male or female, but very quickly it gets very interesting. Males make tons of pollen. In fact, the cones that produce the pollen are about the size of a man's forearm. The pollen appears to get from males to females, primarily with the aid of beetles. Meanwhile, the females make special fuzzy, bright orange reproductive leaves that are a little smaller than your hand. To me, they look like chicken feet. When it's time to reproduce, the females stop making regular leaves and start making the orange leaves. Then, when they've produced enough, they switch back. So on female plants, you can see alternating rings of green and orange leaves. That is really interesting. How, though, do they reproduce through leaves? Well, the females produce fuzz-covered seeds. These unfertilized seeds are attached directly to the base of one of the orange leaves on what would be basically the ankle of the chicken foot. If they get pollinated, they grow to be large, about an inch across, and under that orange fuzz, they're bright red. Squirrels love to eat them, though, so you may not find any on these plants. One last interesting thing, after the pollen lands on the unfertilized seed, it takes an additional five months for the sperm to break out of the pollen and reach the egg inside. That's compared to a day or less for most flowering plants. Also, and this is amazing, the sperm cells swim with the aid of hundreds of flagella, and they are as large as the dot on top of an eye in a standard newspaper. That means you can see them with the naked eye. So, enough about plant sex. Don, what can you tell us about the birds? You might well see white-throated swifts here in the quad with the naked eye as well. The birds nest in crevices and cavities under roof tiles and within the eaves of buildings. In late summer, they begin to form communal roosts, and by winter, a flock of 50 to 100 birds roosts here or nearby. It can be difficult to spot the birds during the day. 
They forage widely at considerable height, but on a winter evening you should have little difficulty seeing them circle over the quad before descending to their roost. Direction 20. Facing Memorial Church, walk diagonally across the quad toward the distant circle on your right. It lies just to the left of the archway that leads toward the science and engineering quad and frames a lane of tall palms. In the quad, you can see a fair number of other bird species, depending on the time and day and season. Besides the usual mix found in many parts of the campus, keep your eye out for unexpected migrants among the exotic trees. Insects are also abundant. Butterflies and bees love the orange and yellow-flowered lantana shrubs that grow in all the circular planters. Some of the most interesting butterflies belong to the genus Vanessa, and are regular migrants that occur often in the late spring and summer. Vanessa butterflies include painted ladies with their orange and black wing pattern and red admirals. Skippers, too, are plentiful. Skippers are a group of small, fast-flying insects with larger, sturdier bodies and proportionately smaller wings than most butterflies. Although the lantana feeds many useful insects, it is not a purely beneficial plant. In more tropical areas, such as Florida and Hawaii, it has become invasive. Fortunately, it seems to behave itself in California. You should be at the circle in the farthest corner from our entry point into the quad. In this circle is another interesting tree, the silk floss tree, Ceba speciosa, native to Brazil. Probably the first thing you'd notice about it are the mean-looking spines, which technically are called prickles because they grow right from the bark covering its greenish trunk and branches. If you wondered, spines are modified leaves and thorns are modified branches or stems. The prickles, growing right from the bark, are said to store water. It's interesting to consider the size of the herbivore or passerby they deter. Or deterred back in the Cretaceous. Yes, otherwise this is a very graceful looking tree. You'll see that the palmately compound leaves are a little smaller than your hand and have leaflets radiating out from a central point. They drop in early fall. In September or October, the hot pink and white flowers might be enough to distract you from the spines. They are very showy and very delicate. The spent flowers make a bed of pink on the ground under the tree. And as you might guess, Anna's hummingbirds love these flowers. What about the seeds? Good question. The fruits of the silk floss tree have a tough outside and are hard to open, but naturalized parrots in Los Angeles predictably harvest them. Inside the fruit, the seeds are surrounded by a mass of, well, silky floss. Speaking of harvesting, Don, what can you tell us about these acorn woodpeckers? Well, this is the best circle to look for them, and you probably won't have to look too hard. If you don't see them scaling these palms, which are pockmarked with small holes for catching harvested acorns, and defaced with larger holes they use for roosting or nesting, then you'll see them flying to and from these trees and hear their distinctive calls. If you look closely at the palms, you should be able to see acorns in some of the small holes. There's an interesting old account by Stephen Powers from 1877 that describes the acorn caches of these birds as a kind of sylvan barometer for some Native Americans in the old days. According to Powers, before the Northern California rainy season would begin, the birds would be busy storing acorns in their cache trees. When the humidity would begin to rise, the acorns would swell and start to protrude from the holes. 
When it was clear that a storm was brewing, the birds would be busy hammering the acorns back in tight. So all winter long, when the Wallala Indians heard an increase in tapping, they were fairly sure it was going to rain. And look who happens to be passing through the quad. It's Professor Terry Root, the biologist involved in the study I mentioned about climate change and related changes in bird distributions. It's really great to see you. Terry, we're just talking about acorn woodpeckers as sylvan barometers for Native Americans. However, your work shows that birds are barometers of very troubling effects of climate change. I mentioned the decline in our relatively local yellow-billed magpies from West Nile virus and further projected declines as a result of climate change. What might we expect from these acorn woodpeckers whose calls are heard in so many parts of the campus? I don't think that climate change is going to affect acorn woodpeckers that much unless we have other birds moving in and they push acorn woodpeckers out. I teach this class on biology of birds where it's actually a lot of fun to try and see what are the characteristics of the species that are not being hurt by climate change and what are the characteristics of the species that are. And through all that fun, what we're able to do is actually somehow understand which species are probably going to be more endangered by climate change than others. And then we can also look at the species that are going to be endangered and figure out which of those we actually can go in and help. That, to me, is one of the most important things that we can be doing right now. House sparrows, which podcast listeners might also find here in the quad, are invasive pests. Terry, any chance these pesky birds might be pushed down in population numbers by climate change? Oh, I could only wish that would be true. I don't believe that's going to happen. I think that the birds that are going to do the best with climate change are all the pesky little birds. Thanks so much for stopping, Terry. I think we've arranged to officially meet you on one of the other loops to hear about what you've been learning about other birds that make this campus their home. Great. I really look forward to seeing you again. Well, I suppose I should tell you a little more about house sparrows. They were brought over from Europe with the intent of controlling harmful insects. Instead, the birds drove out native birds and did a lot of damage to crops. They liked it here in North America and spread out, reaching San Francisco a couple of decades before the university was founded. In 1898, seven years after Stanford opened its doors, William Reitman Price, a field biologist, wrote that the species had overtaken the quad. He found the bird, quote, noisy, turbulent, and ungainly, in no way desirable. He drives away other birds. And when he cannot obtain a half-finished swallow's nest, he builds one for himself under the tiles of the arcade and rears a numerous progeny. I hate to leave on this note, so I'll add that their numbers actually decreased when the auto replaced the horse in horse feed on which the birds foraged. Well, we've come to the end of Loop 7. As you look around the quad, enjoy some of these extraordinary trees. I wish we could tell you about more of them, but this is a walk, not a crawl, and we've already kept you for about an hour. Thank you for staying with us. Those of you who would like to know more about these trees or birds, visit trees.stanford.edu or birds.stanford.edu and look for links to information about the quad. Direction 21. As you walk back toward the Memorial Church, Those of you who have taken Loop 2 will recognize the path on its right 
and know that you have reached the escaped avocado tree and the beginning of that loop. Those interested in taking loop two or one can pick up either one at that spot. Thanks so much, Don and Paul and Catherine. I'd like to add a few comments. The legacy of the pesky house sparrow points out one of the primary elements from this walk. Some transplants, like the European starling, have caused serious problems and native species like the western scrub jay, as Paul noted, fight hard to defend their turf. While other transplants, like the dawn redwood that was brought from China that Catherine noted, can be considered part of a successful effort to maintain an endangered species. Meanwhile, the Stanford legacy, the totem pole or crest pole in Canfield Court, carved by Haida artist Don Yeomans, points out another primary element from today's walk. That is, corvid intelligence. Whether it's rooks using stones to raise a floating worm into reach, or crows recognizing a caveman, right side up or upside down, or Stanford's own Green Library ravens, nesting on a warm light fixture, just a quick glide from a fountain in the shape of a lotus. Also, the outdoor sculpture, when viewed through a science lens as examples of science art, connect us to falcons, to mempest or mosquitoes, or to walking luna moths, while the indoor art shows us how merlins try to hunt Mexican free-tailed bats, cliff swallows try to nest in the arcade, and ravens, keep returning to Green Library. <laughs>